Well, let's turn to First Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3. There are going to be a few scriptures actually we'll look at today because I want to examine uh, a particular aspect of God's word and we want to kind of see it in the scripture itself because it uh, teaches us so much. But the text that we're going to read this morning makes a, well, it makes a few statements in fact, but there's a, a phrase that says, without controversy, God was manifested in the flesh. And so just think about that for a moment. God was manifested in the flesh. Because this is a glorious truth as we consider Christ this morning and our great Saviour and our salvation and so we call it, there's a, there's a term, we call it the incarnation. The incarnation. And so because God was manifested in the flesh. The word incarnation means to take on flesh. That God himself became a man in the Son of God. And we will see this and identified in the scriptures uh, in just a moment. And so obviously it's Christmas time, and so it's that time of the year. And so just as, as, as the text will refer to, as we'll see, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. What is also without controversy, and as it's been pointed out a few times this morning, is Jesus was not born on December the 25th, okay? And so I think we all know that, it's obvious, and... Um, and in fact, if you do a bit of study on it, the, you cannot deny the reality that it has its uh, uh, roots in pagan practices and so forth. But hey, I'm not going to go there today, okay? Because obviously we're here to talk about the, the Son of God. And so despite the aspects that are associated with the world and the corruption of all that is of Christ and all of those things, it's just important that we... Uh, focus on those things that are important. Because yeah, I know that over the years I've uh, been called and labelled the, the Grinch. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so, um, and uh, you know, I think there's some good aspects to that title and maybe some not so good, but because uh, I can be a little grumpy. And so, yes, uh, but I thought as I was preparing this message, I thought, you know, I'm going to look at what the Grinch actually, what's the moral of the, the story of the Grinch? And so, and so if you know, the, obviously you know the term, but uh, the story or the moral behind the story of the Grinch is that um, uh, he, he obviously he hated Christmas. And uh, he thought that those who celebrated Christmas were inherently selfish. And so he thought, if I could just destroy Christmas and destroy their presence and, and, uh, and all of those things, um, then in doing so I could expose the superficiality of it and I could expose their selfish hearts. And, and so as he sought to destroy Christmas, he realised that once he had destroyed their presence and all of those things that in, uh, amongst their, this community, their, their love for one another prevailed over those elementary things and so it's supposed to teach us that life Christmas is not about you know uh, receiving gifts 
and uh, all the commercialism, as we've heard today, and the materialism that's associated with it, but uh, uh, there's something far more important. Now, that is a humanistic, obvious, this is humanism, and, uh, and so forth. That's why I get really irritated. I'm a Grinch when I, when I see non-Christians singing Christmas carols. I've got to be honest with you, I'm a Grinch. I look at the, I switch on the TV and watch, and I see, you know, and it gets replayed on Christmas Day or something, and you see the, all these sinners and they're singing Christmas carols. I'm a Grinch. I get, I get agitated at it because they have, they have no idea what they're singing about. They have no knowledge of Christ and those things. And so we're going to put all of those things aside, but we're going to focus on, well, what is the importance? How can we make Christmas about Christ because obviously even when it had its when it was formulated December 25th and it came into play as the date of Jesus's birth either the church in those days put aside some of those aspects and said well we're just going to focus on the son of righteousness and I mean and I, that's a phrase found in the Mal- book of Malachi the son is not as s-o-n but s-u-n because the, because the worship of those days was the winter solstice, which is what they're doing now over in Europe, you know, and they watch the sun, which just happened two days ago. It's that period, and so, uh, and so it's the shortest day of the year, and so it's all connected to the worship of the sun. So the early church said, well, let's make it about the sun of righteousness uh, that will rise, which is Christ. And so, um, and so we always seek to make our emphasis on Christ. And obviously his birth, because the incarnation this morning is a wonderful, glorious truth. And to just take the opportunity to reflect upon it, to put it into perspective, and to see these things is is such a wonderful, wonderful thing for us as Christians to just focus on the birth of Jesus Christ. Because the greatest miracle that ever happened was that Christ or God became a man, that God took on flesh. And in doing so, we see Christ Jesus. And this is a conundrum for the world, because, and even for many false religions, because we're talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is 100% God. He's the Son of God, and he is 100% man. He's the Son of man. And when you consider those dual aspects... And you see them identified in the scripture because that's why we can put our faith is because it's there. It's clearly revealed, as we will see. And so I want to uh, unpack this, this aspect of the incarnation this morning of uh, God our Saviour. So let's read our text in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to look at verse 14. The Bible says, These things I write to you. Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, received up or received on in the world and received up in glory. Amen. Now, I want to point out that 
I remember I used to read this and think, well, without, where it says, without controversy, or, or without, yeah, it says in verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And I used to think, well, that means that, it's, uh, with, uh, that there's, 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 uh, there is a lot of controversy that surrounds this mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. Because we understand that this truth is undermined consistently by false religion and false teachings, right? Because ever, there's, a, there's those that just will not accept that God has come in the flesh, and so he gives birth to some of the false teachings that we see and they say, well, Jesus is just a prophet or he is, um, he's an angel because we cannot grapple, they will not accept and there's a controversy that surrounds the deity uh, of the incarnation, that God became a man. But you see, that is not what Paul is saying in this instance when he's speaking He's not saying that it is controversy, controversial. He's actually saying that the truth and the reality of God becoming a man is without any controversy. It is a truth that is, is fully established. It is a truth that is fully revealed. And he talks about the church of the living God. And he talks about the word of God and the church of the living God. And he says, which is the pillar or the pillar, and the ground of truth. And so where there's the horizontal and the vertical aspect of the truth. And the truth and the foundation of our faith starts with the fact that God became a man. Because if you do not accept the reality of Christ being the Son of God, God in the flesh, then you are of the spirit of Antichrist. This is very serious. This is without controversy. This is a stated fact, a revealed reality that is in the Scriptures. And those that can't grapple and understand it in their logical minds then try to undermine it and corrupt it. And that's what we see. And so <clears throat> Paul is saying that the opposite is true. There is no controversy. It's without controversy. The God was manifested in the flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. You know why? Because that mystery is not a mystery anymore. It's a mystery that has been revealed. And we see it in the scriptures. And it is clear to us. And I want us to examine it and see it and identify it this morning. It's the foundation of our faith. Anything else is a lie. You know, going back even to the beginning and when sin entered the world, what did God speak as he spoke and he spoke to the serpent, Satan, and he spoke about the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman that would crush or bruise the serpent's head. And that seed of the woman, we know, is, was, a, was a prophecy that concerned the ultimate coming. That seed was the seed that the enemy sought to destroy these, uh, right throughout the Old Testament as you read about the history of all of this until the time of the manifestation uh, that Christ was manifested in the flesh, God came. We have the enemy trying to destroy that seed. But that seed is central. And that seed is the one that was going to bruise and to crush the serpent's head. Now when we think about that seed that was first spoken of in the book of Genesis, as you read the Bible and as you study it, you begin to realise it begins to take on form. 
you begin to get little glimpses of prophecy and illustrations and foreshadowings and, and, uh, 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 and types that begin to reveal and to teach us certain things. And one of the most uh, uh, common ones that we are familiar with is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, which again was quoted this morning, but it was the miracle of the conception of Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And we know what the Bible tells us Emmanuel means. What is it? God with us. God. And the virgin shall conceive. So here is a prophecy. Uh, and, uh, and here we have it spoken hundreds and hundreds of years before the actual fulfillment. And yet it's a sign from God. And the virgin shall conceive. And we know the story of Mary. And we know the story of the, this conception. That it was of the Holy Spirit outside of normal and natural means. And not only was the virgin who brought forth the Messiah in Christ Jesus and bore a son, who was the son of God, as he shall be known as, but his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Not just a man, although he is a man, but God with us. See, this is none other than the eternal son of God. The eternal Son of God. We talk about the triune nature and the Father, the clear revelation of the, in the scriptures of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see now, and we are seeing this manifestation of the Son of God, the eternal Sonship of Jesus Christ. And so this is the pre existent Son. In John chapter 1. You know the scriptures in Luke, uh, sorry, in John chapter 1, verse 1? What is it that the scripture tells us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And so you can go down to verse 14, and here is the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth see and then it talks this about the only begotten son see this is powerful the word became flesh the eternal son the Son of God. God is now manifested in the flesh and He's tabernacling as amongst us. He's indwelling amongst us. God is in human form. And this, this, is, is, this is the incarnation right here that we are observing in the Gospel of John. The mystery now has been revealed. Christ has now been manifested. The mystery of godliness has been manifested. God is manifest in the flesh right here in Christ Jesus. 
And we see this, and let's look at a couple of aspects here as we, 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 we build around it. Because in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says these words, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, the only begotten son. There's not two. There's not another. It's the only begotten and it's this here that's in the psalm, which is, again, prophetic. And what is it? It happens at the baptism of Christ when he is water baptized and he goes into the water, comes out. The Bible says the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And then a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so, again, there is this declaration. They said the voice thundered. As they heard the sounds. And this is the confirmation of God upon the Son and upon Christ. And this is the manifestation of God in the flesh. As the Holy Spirit comes upon him to begin his ministry on the earth. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 the scripture says. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, all all the fullness of the divine nature. Not just some, not just a deposit, not just 10% or part. No, no, no. He is the full embodiment. He is the full manifestation, God in the flesh. In him dwells all the fullness of the divine nature is in Christ Jesus. See, this gives us an idea and a glimpse as we identify his deity and his divine attributes. He's no angel. Isn't it a, a, an affront that we have those that see that he's a, claim that he's an angel or Michael the archangel? See, this undermines his divinity. This is the whole question of who is the nature of Jesus Christ. But he's no angel. And the scripture is so clear on it. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. So we're going to look at some scripture and just see these things. But in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer is addressing this aspect of his superiority. And he's above angels. He's not an angel. Angels are just servants and ministers. This is not the case with Christ, with the Son. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. There's a direct reference again. To which angel has he ever used that expression? None. Because he's not an angel. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is the nature of the relationship, father, son, and obviously spirit. And then verse 6, but when he, listen, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, this is the firstborn Christ, He says, let all the angels of God, what? Worship him. There's only one that can be worshipped. That's God. And so it says, let all the angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, listen to what he says to the son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Therefore, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Christ, the only begotten, worshipped for good reason because he's God. And so we see all of these references in the scripture that point to the divinity of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, God manifested in the flesh. So this leads us to the next question that I want to put to us this morning. Is why? Why was it necessary? Why was it required? Why did God have to become a man? Why is it that he had to manifest himself in the flesh? I mean, couldn't he have just done it any other way before? We know that there was the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament and that blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So we know that that's the case. So, if that's, so why was it that it had to be his blood? Because we will see this in the scripture. But we, we will begin to identify that there is only one saviour this morning. See, the incarnation in and of itself does not save the fact that God becomes a man doesn't save us in and of itself. It's what happens as a result of that. It's what happens afterwards. The essential link to God's plan of salvation is that he becomes a man. But he, uh, that's not the end in and of itself. The fact is, is that he was born to what? To die. That was the whole reason for his birth. He was born to die. You see, can I say this this morning? God is the only one that can save humanity from their sins. Listen, he is the only saviour. There is no other. And we begin to identify this in the Old Testament, in fact. And I want to read to you uh, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. It says, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me, there is no saviour. You know the word saviour? It literally means to save. There is no one that can save. There is no one to save. There is no one besides me. God says, I am the only saviour. Now, if that's the case, then who is Jesus Christ? Christ Jesus, what's the word Jesus mean? Saviour. And so if God is the only saviour, and we're talking now about the incarnation, this is the background, keeping this in mind, we're talking now that if God is this the only saviour and there's no saviour besides God, then we have Jesus Christ and the word Jesus himself reveals to us his nature and his purpose and the word Jesus means saviour and the Hebrew it means God saves. It comes from two, uh, um, a, a breakdown of two Hebrew words. One is where we get the word Yahweh, which is Jehovah, yeah, Jesus, or Yeshua. In the Hebrew, they call him Yeshua, right? Yeshua. And it comes from the word Jehovah, Yahweh. And it also comes from another Hebrew word, which means Yasha, which means to rescue, to deliver, or to save. So when we say Jesus, we're saying Saviour, God saves. And only God can save. And he didn't just save by sending Jesus in that context, but God manifested in the flesh. There's no saviour besides him. So when you see Jesus, who are you seeing? 
the Savior. Who's the Savior? God. Emmanuel. God with us. God in the flesh. And this is a, this is a, this is a potent truth and reality that we can meditate upon. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 4, the Bible says, Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no saviour besides me. He says to Israel, you have no other saviour. I am your saviour. And this is really important because this was what God was communicating to the nation of Israel. Yes, the, the, he was a light to the Gentiles and we came, were grafted in into the, the church and the overall plan of God. But remember, he came for who? The house of Israel in, in, in his first manifestation. God was a Jew. He wasn't a Palestinian or anything else. He was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. And he was born of the seed of David as a, in, in the direct lineage. And yes, in the, the royal line, but then you have the line of Nathan because you have the curse of Jeconiah that's found in, in the book of Jeremiah. Where, and that lines, and Satan thought that he had destroyed the seed that was going to come through the lineage of, of Matthew. But you see, God in his wisdom was working through the lineage of Nathan. That's why you have Luke's genealogy and shows us through Mary the direct seed and the manifestation of God being born into the world, the incarnation. And that's the whole, some of the aspects that you see there. But there's only one saviour. You know, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, there's a familiar portion of text, you've heard it. It says these words, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now we know that it was... John the Baptist, that was the forerunner for Christ. And we know that the Lord had put this scripture and they said, who are you? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? He said, no, I am preceding the Messiah. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now we in our English versions read the word Lord, but in the Hebrew it's the word Yahweh. For Jehovah, as we know it, Jehovah, prepare the way for Jehovah. God is coming. And that's why when Christ manifested, John the Baptist took a back seat and he said, I must decrease, but he must increase. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's only one Saviour that can take away the sin of the world. That's God. You know, what's interesting is if, if you understand the breakdown of the book of Isaiah in its 66 books, you have the first 39 books and then it ends with the, the God bringing the, the condemnation upon, and judgment upon the children of Israel and their captivity in Babylon. And then you have chapter 40 and if you read onwards, it completely shifts and talks about comfort to my people because God has a plan of what? Salvation. And so, but you begin to read it and that's what's interesting because the Jews... Uh, understood or they would read the book of Isaiah and they understood the, the prophecies and they understood the fact that God was going to come and send a saviour. They were waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one to come and yet they, because he was clearly revealed in the scriptures. But they wanted a triumphant king. So they were looking for a political uh, fix when, Christ, when the Messiah would come because he'd free them from the bondage of Rome. But you see, if you read from Isaiah 
onwards, 40 onwards, you'll see a particular theme begin to evolve and it's, what's, it's a thing that's referred to as the suffering servant. The suffering servant. And it's in that context we just read, there's no saviour besides me. And this saviour is going to be a suffering servant. So when they saw, and then you have all the prophecies that begin to identify the nature of the Messiah, the purpose of the Messiah, and yet they couldn't identify it because that's why they can't identify, the Jews couldn't see, wait a minute, the Messiah is supposed to be a, a political king that he's going to destroy his enemies. Yeah, he will in his second coming. But in his first coming, he was a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. He was the suffering servant. But yet, in the Revelation, it talks about the, la- the wrath of the Lamb because that's what's coming. There's a shift. Isn't it interesting? That's why um, Muslims, they can't identify with the cross. They say Jesus didn't die on the cross because they see that as weakness. Like God suffering? God doesn't suffer. He's the king. He just destroys all his enemies. He's just a wild man, you know. There's no concept of defeat or humility or suffering. In, in God. And yet we see that God, as he speaks about the Saviour and gives us glimpses and pictures and prophecies of the Saviour, you begin to realise you're dealing with a suffering servant, a servant that suffered. And so this is important as we consider the incarnation because when you look at the life of Christ and you begin to see the way in which he lived and died. You begin to see how God uh, allowed, allowed for this, foreordained this. And as the scripture says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him when you make his soul an offering for sin. His whole purpose was to die. You know, in Matthew's gospel, and uh, again, Colm read it earlier, but I'll read it again. And it's talking, the angel's speaking to to Mary, it says that she'll bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You notice it says his people. Again, this, isn't Israel God's people? And then it says the Messiah, the, the, the Savior, will save his people. They're his people? Are they God's people or Jesus' people? They're they're his people. They're God's people. And Jesus is God. That's why he said you call his name Jesus, Saviour. Because there's only one Saviour, God. And so, and how was he going to save his people from their sins? Through death, through a sacrifice for sins, through suffering on such a scale that we have not seen. The Bible says again in in the prophet Isaiah, it says his visage was marred or his appearance was was marred more than any other man. God allowed this servant, the suffering, so he allowed himself to be beaten and battered and he subjected himself to death, even to the death of the cross and the sufferings that were associated with it. Turn with me to John chapter 12. Gospel of John chapter 12. Again, I just want to identify these things in, in action. It's good for us to see it. In, in John's Gospel chapter 12, it's not a long sermon by the way. In John's Gospel chapter 12 verse 23, the Bible says, But Jesus answered them, 
saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honour. Now look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? He's troubled. Why? Why is he troubled in his soul? Why? He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He knows what he's about to endure, what he's about to be accepted, subjected to. That's why in deep agony he sweat great drops of blood at Gethsemane as his body and soul was pressed in that pressure of the sufferings that was about to come upon him. And look at what he says, and he says, Father, save me from this hour. What should I, should I say that? He says, no, but for this purpose I came to this hour. My whole purpose was to come to this point in the whole of human history, the cross that was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And he had been manifested, God manifested in the flesh for this hour. And he says, what should I now say that I've arrived at this hour? Lord, save me from this hour. He says, let it be not. And obedient. He, he, why does the Bible say he learned obedience by the things that he suffered? The humanity of Christ. And he goes on to say, What shall I say? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Then the people who stood by heard it and said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. If I am lifted up, he is letting them know that the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. You know, that's why, again, Brother Colm read before, and, um, and uh, Peter says, not so, Lord, you're not going to die. And then what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. For you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Because Satan was, would do anything to oppose the purposes of God. Now, there is only one saviour. There is only one who could save. There was only one that's willing to save, and that is God. And it's Jesus in the office of a king, of a prophet, and as a high priest. Can I just turn and read from Hebrews again in chapter 2? And I want to point this out because it says in verse 14, and it says these words, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, meaning we are of flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that is Christ, shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. 
and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now listen to what it says. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren in his humanity, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted and he's able to aid those who are tempted. Now note here the fact that it's referring to the, the, the whole aspect that God took on flesh, the incarnation. He had to be made like his brethren in order not just to be a saviour, but in order to be not just the king, not us the prophet, but rather a high priest. And as a high priest, as the scripture says, he had to be made like us because he represents us with our humanity and our own struggles against sin. But he was perfect without sin. But yet he's a merciful and faithful high priest. And he's able to aid us, the Bible says. But listen to what it says in verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, this is this word propitiation goes to the heart of the death of Christ, the cross of Christ. That word propitiation means what we call substitutionary atonement. And that he was the, Christ was the substitute, you know, because the wages of sin is death. And we all died. We're subject to death, as the scripture says. But Christ came, he was born, and he's going to pay the ultimate penalty of sin, which is what? Death. And he died, and he died, and in doing so, he he bore. Uh, uh, he was a substitute, and not only did he make atonement for sin by shedding his blood, but also there's another term that we associate with substitutionary atonement, and it's the word penal substitution. In that he bore the divine justice of God in himself. That's why he said those words on the cross, "Father, why have you forsaken me?" It's why that uh, went dark for three hours there uh, as he hung upon that cross. And as he bore the sins of the world, because divine justice was being poured out upon Christ, and he bore our punishment in his death. And so he, was, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. And so therefore, amen, we can be saved. These are aspects we won't go into, but I'm just making the statement here. So look at what the blessing that comes out of this. It should go back to verse 10 of chapter 2 there in Hebrews. It says, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. The captain of our salvation. You know, we are saved and the Bible talks about that the earth is waiting and groans as we groan within ourselves. The earth grows, the creation groans. It's what it's groaning for, the manifestation. Of the sons of God. The manifestation of the sons of God. And God is going to bring many sons to glory. And if the captain of our salvation suffered, then we too, how much more should we suffer? As he, with nothing that we suffer that he hasn't suffered. And we haven't suffered to the, to the degree that he has suffered. And yet he's a captain of our salvation. And so we endure this life because you know why? We are waiting for the full salvation to come 
You see, now we have uh, the Holy Spirit who's been deposited in our hearts as a guarantee of, uh, of that which is to come. We have Christ in us. We have been purchased by the blood. We are eternally secure, but we still groan within ourselves because we want to put off this body. We want to enter into uh, the glory of the manifestation of the sons of God, our full inheritance that has been purchased for us in Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But when the fullness, listen, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might what? Receive the adoption as sons. We are sons of God, church. We have been redeemed. He is our saviour. He has saved us from our sins. And more than that, he has now made us sons of God. As many as believed on him, he gave them the authority and the right to become the children of God, the sons of God. And so we are now, we have been adopted into the family of God as sons of God. And listen, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Amen. The spirit, we have a spirit within us, the Holy Spirit, who, who intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And there are times in our suffering in this life where we pray and we, and uh, we, because you know what? Sometimes I just want to get out of this body and I just want to be with the Lord. Have you ever felt like that? The longer life goes on, you're just like, just get this over and done with, Lord. I want out. <laughs> but Paul says, there's a part of me that wants to go now and be with Christ, which is far better. But he says, there's another part of me that sees the need for me to remain because for the, for the purpose of God, for the will of God, and to do his will, for me to live is Christ. And so, again, I'm going a bit off topic here, but I just want to make that point that uh, we are recipients. We have been saved. He is our saviour, and we have been uh, uh, promoted to sonship, and we have received an internal inheritance, all because of what Christ did and his death. God is our only saviour. God was manifested in the flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. It's a mystery that has been revealed. It's not a mystery anymore. In, in the days uh, be, uh, that it was concealed in the Old Testament, it was a mystery. That's why when they, the Jews said, who you... you you know, people say, where does Jesus ever say that he's God? You know, you've heard that debate. And then they say, what do you think they wanted to stone Jesus? What do you think they wanted to kill him? What do you think they ended up condemning him to death to be crucified? Because he said, I am the son of God. In other words, they understood the very nature of what he was saying. I am God. That's why they took up stones to stone him. Because he said, before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly who he claimed to be. And they wanted to kill him for it. But you see, it's without controversy, church. There is no controversy. Jesus is God. Christ is, is the incarnation, the eternal sonship of God. God becomes a man, the only begotten Emmanuel, God with us. And we will glory in this truth this morning. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us, a child is born. 
a child is born and to us a son is given. To us it's a child that's born. The world loves the child. The child is born, baby Jesus. But a son is given. The son of God. God is in the flesh. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Actually, before I do that, can I read one more scripture? I just saw it. Let me read it to you. Philippians chapter 2. I can't not read this scripture because it sums it all up. Philippians chapter 2. You know it, but I'm going to read it. And verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, that is in the nature of God, being God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, meaning that he, he didn't hold on to the fact that he was God, but he put that aside and he didn't uh, uh, emphasise or demand that point and make an issue of that point. But listen to verse 7, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. This is God. This is the incarnation. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, and at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for the word of God. We just thank you, Lord, that there is no controversy. Without controversy, it is, Lord God was manifest in the flesh. Hallelujah. We thank you, God, that you are our saviour. You came, Lord, and you did for us that which we could not do for ourselves, Lord. And you did a work, God, that is so great, so profound. And God, that you subjected yourself through suffering to such an horrific death. Lord, in order, God, to save us from our sins, to God adopt us and bring us back into the family of God. Lord, to be in, uh, receive an inheritance that's incorruptible. Oh, God, we just thank you that we have been ordained to sonship and that, God, you are going to bring many sons to glory. And God, whatever suffering we may have to endure in this life, we are waiting, Lord, until that day. Oh, come. Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus and glory to God. Amen.